Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Jacqueline Ling is a co-founder of Hatchways, a Y Combinator-backed startup that is modernizing the technical interview process. Prior to starting Hatchways, Jacqueline was a co-founder of a fashion bot company, Blink, which was acquired by Kick Interactive in 2016. Jacqueline grew up in Vancouver, Canada, studied finance at McGill University, and had her first taste of success as a YouTube fashion influencer. In this episode, you'll learn how Jacqueline's love for competition was first sparked as a kid playing board games, how Jacqueline knew she wanted to be an entrepreneur at a young age, and how Jacqueline translated her dislike for interviewing into building Hatchways, a company focused on making interviews better. Hope you enjoy this episode and let's get started. Hey Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, nice to see you. I'm excited for the conversation today. As I was doing research for this, I saw that you are a fan of the Raptors. So as we head into the preseason for the 2023-24 season, where where and how well do you think the uh, Raptors will do this season? Ooh. <laughs> well, it's funny. Okay, a couple months ago, I actually had the chance to go to Vegas and go watch some of the Summer League games. Okay. Um, so I was watching some of our new players. Not so optimistic, but no? Um, okay. no, but I'm I'm excited. I mean, always love um, the underdog story. So hopefully we can turn things around in the next few months. <laughs> and do you think we should trade uh, Pascal or OG for Damian Lillard if that offer were on the table? <laughs> That's a hard one. You know, I love OG. He's one of my favorites. So as a personal fan, I would say no, but I think Damian Lillard would be an awesome addition. Yeah, yeah, team, yeah. You know? It's a, the, the timelines are hard to manage, right? So yeah. I'm sure it's not easy to manage an NBA team and all the uh, the the superstar egos like James Harden. Um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing more about your journey and where you're at today with um, with Hatchways. But I kind of want to start with your origin story. So for those who haven't heard the story, uh, can you share a little bit more about where you're born and kind of what your early childhood looked like? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in the greater Vancouver area in a city called Burnaby. Um, I'm actually third generation. So my mom was born in, well, okay, so my mom was born in Vancouver. My dad was born in Malaysia, um, but I don't speak any Chinese and neither does my mom. So I wasn't raised speaking um, any Chinese, which is kind of unfortunate. But um, I have a huge like extended family in Vancouver. So all my aunts, uncles, cousins, mom's cousins moms aunts and uncles live in vancouver so grew up with a huge family and just close tight-knit family um and yeah i mean so i went to school in vancouver uh, up into high school and then moved to montreal for for Mm -hmm. so i spent a couple of years of my childhood in vancouver and now it is very diverse right maybe at this point you would say if you're chinese 
or East Asian living in Vancouver, you're part of the majority um, yeah. minority. What was your experience like growing up? Was it similar to that? Or it's, it's very so. I yeah. I was definitely within the majority. Like I think I if I think back, just a rough estimate, I honestly feel like seventy percent of my class was like Asian. Um, so yeah. I definitely didn't feel like. Yeah, it didn't. My race didn't actually stand out to me when I was when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Um, I, until actually I went to university. Yeah. And then even within the Asian diaspora in Canada, you know, there are different pockets of, you know, Asian Canadian culture, right? Like um, anime culture or like, yeah, <laughs> you know, the cars. Was there one subculture that you really attached to when you were younger? That's an interesting question. I was, I mean, a huge Pokemon fan. I don't know okay. if that's yeah. a subculture, but I was super into the Game Boy Pokemon games, the card games. Every like Sunday, there was this like Pokemon competition held at um, Toys R Us in Metro Town wow. that I used to go to. <laughs> and so maybe that was my like mini subculture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Pokemon's still alive and well, right? Even with my young kids. Totally. Uh, the elementary school kids love Pokemon, so they, they've done a good job keeping it alive. Yeah. Um, and what, what sparked your curiosity when you were younger, right? Like when you're in elementary school, middle school, what did you gravitate to naturally um, and what piqued your interest? I mean, I think along the same lines as the Pokemon stuff, I was always into games. I wasn't like a mm-hmm. video gamer, but I was a huge like, just like board games, like card games. I used to make up my own games. Oh wow! Um, so anything where there was like a winner and loser, and anything that could mm-hmm. get like competitive was definitely my vibe. So you you definitely had a competitive streak. For sure. I mean, if you ask any of my family or friends, I think that's probably the one oh, word wow. they would use to describe. Did you have a sim- Did you have a sibling? I have an older brother, and okay. then I have two younger half brothers. Yeah. Okay. So, what was kind of the game that? brought the whole family together and how did you usually fare compared to your siblings um so i think younger i think like big two card game oh yeah yeah (laughs) is that like is that a common game in like in the asian community or in toronto as well or is that is that a new game no no i remember playing that Okay, yeah. so that was a huge it's game. Almost like a drinking game too, maybe. Is it? <laughs> okay, not when I was eight, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not when you're. Yeah. Um, so big two as a card game was a big game for us. I mean, a lot of honestly, we actually had a lot of made up games. We used oh, okay. to do a lot of these types of games where we would write words on paper and then like play games with them. Or um, yeah, I mean, board games obviously like Monopoly, that type of game. Um, yeah. Again, Pokemon was a big game growing up for me. Um, Neopets, like the oh, yeah. Tetris. I was I was obsessed with Tetris oh, for a wow. period of time. So, yeah, I think those. And games then, in terms of your upbringing, like schooling, uh, after school activities, what did that look like, and how how packed were your schedules during the work week, like the school week? Pardon me. You know what? It wasn't that packed. So my parents divorced when I was really young. So mm-hmm. I was actually like it was it it was tough for me to do a lot of extracurricular activities because i I mainly well i went back and forth with my parents but my mom i mainly lived with my mom and she had a full-time job and she had to juggle a bunch of stuff so i i wasn't i didn't do a lot of extracurriculars growing up um Mm -hmm. the only one i did was piano uh oh um and 
and but I didn't love piano, so that one was not an exciting. Oh yeah. For me. How far in the piano journey did you go? If I you remember, think, I think I did up to maybe grade seven. Um, okay, it's pretty advanced, like yeah. the Royal Conservatory. Yeah, yeah. One, yeah. Um, yeah. But look at how you turned out. That's what <laughs> I um. My kids, uh, six and seven, we just signed them up for a piano lesson. We started two weeks ago. And I'm like, there's going to be a point for sure where they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. No, for sure. <laughs> but because I did the same thing when I was young and I didn't I didn't like it. My mom said I asked, why are my why do my friends get to play baseball? And I'm the only one playing piano. But now that I'm older, yeah, I look back and I'm so thankful. Yes, yes. No, but it's so funny that you say that because I always have the same thought too. I'm like, I actually wish I got enrolled into sports. Um, oh, because now yeah. as, a, as an adult, I'm so much more excited about team sports and, and enrolling that as extracurricular. Right, but right. again, I think like music and kind of learning those skills is always a, a great right. um, have, yeah. So no no complaints that you you went up to grade seven. You no would, you would do it again if you could. I would do it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine how you would have turned out if you didn't do that. So. It's true. <laughs> I feel like you're looking for some justification for uh, totally, putting your kids in, in. Okay. Well, this this piano uh, school that I signed my kids up to, it's a full year commitment. It's not like month by month. So yeah. we had to think long and hard about it, and yeah. obviously, I'm still trying to justify it. Um, mm -hmm. So you kind of mentioned mom and dad. How would you characterize each of your parents? And you know, one thing that really stays with you today in terms of who they were and and how they raised you. Yeah, my parents are like the most opposite people you could have. Um, mm -hmm. So on one end, my mom much more prioritizes like stable certainty, like working really hard. She worked at a bank for most of um my childhood and yeah just worked really hard and worked her way up my dad was more in like sales and his like various entrepreneurial endeavors um big risk taker like much more of like follow your heart and like mm. emotional decision making and so i think like that combination of having such opposite parents was it's kind of like yeah who i am today it's kind of this like I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm not like the biggest risk taker. I'm, risk -taker. I'm more thoughtful and more planned out. And mm -hmm. kind of like this combination of, of of my parents is kind of who I have become today. Um, you know, so seeing kind of this combination of like hard work and kind of like steady growth and that take risk and follow kind of where your passions are is kind of what mm -hmm. your parents. Mm -hmm. And then how did that kind of influence what you wanted to, let's say, focus on academically? So as you, was going, as you were going through the schooling system and in high school, did you have a pretty good sense of what you wanted to either study academically or number two, what you wanted to, to do professionally? Yeah, so I think probably when I was in elementary school, I already knew I wanted to be like an entrepreneur. I was very wow. interested in business, in like how to make money, in like these kind of side hustles mm -hmm. things. Um, but I don't think I tied that to a particular discipline to study in school. So right. I actually didn't know what do I need to study or what do I need to learn in order to do that. I think I just always knew I want to eventually do this, but I don't really know how I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. Were there some early entrepreneurial experiences you had in your childhood, like selling something to classmates or your oh, for cousins? Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I think I, I can't remember how old I was, maybe 
yeah, in elementary school, me and my brother, we made up this like fake board game where we created these like characters and these like kind of like Pokemon cards. And then like you would trade and collect them and we would sell them to our cousins. But then of course, like the trick was like, we would make the ones that, the ones that were the rare ones and price that one up. And then, you know, like gamify that system a bit. So yeah. I had a little bit of that. I had, um, I did a couple of these like fundraiser stuff when I was in elementary school for more of these like um, charities that I was like interested in. So I, I think I always had this like, how do you build something that you could sell quickly and kind of make money in? And that was sort of mm -hmm. like part of my childhood. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, and this, resonates with me because my parents also divorced mm. how do you feel like that impacted you as a child and ultimately your worldview today as an adult so i think as a kid um i sort of took advantage of that in like mm -hmm. maybe like to my to to my favor so i was a little bit of a i would say like I don't know, troublemaker slash like try to cut quarters when I was a kid. So even when I was in elementary school, I remember like if I just I didn't finish my homework or I forgot about my homework, I would kind of give this like sob story to my teacher be like, well, you know, I was at my mom's house last night because like my parents are divorced. And so I think I kind of learned to like use that a little bit to mm. get out of trouble. Um, Did it work? It definitely worked. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then as an adult, I mean, I think, to be honest, I don't know that it's made a super big impact in my life because my parents mm -hmm. divorced when I was so young. Like, I don't even really mm -hmm. remember a time where they were together. So I think it's just been, yeah, I've adjusted and I think I've really appreciated having um, very different and opposite parents and then having yeah. two two sides of the family. So I, I have two younger half brothers as well. and that's also been um, a really joyful experience to be a, a older sister as well. Bigger, yeah, yeah. A bigger family, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. And then let's kind of shift gears to your decision to uh, study business and finance at McGill. Mm -hmm. Where, how did you make that decision? And was it a pretty straightforward decision on where to go and what to study? So on where to go, I, I think I really just wanted to actually move out of Vancouver. And so that was my number one priority. I kind of felt like I wanted a change in environment. I felt like I wasn't excited about what my life would look like if I stayed in Vancouver. Um, so I was really just trying to prioritize like getting out of Vancouver, getting a different experience. Uh, so I applied to most schools like within Canada and then, you know, McGill at the time seemed exciting because it was like so different. Um, mm -hmm what to study was like i had no idea and i really took so many different paths in university i explored many different options for for degrees like i at one point was interested in doing communications and then one point i was interested in doing psychology and then philosophy and then i was just really lost and so i yeah. I took like a year off to just do a bunch of like internships and try different things and then i just kind of arrived back at being like let's just like do something a little bit more pragmatic. And so I really enjoyed my first year finance class. So I just decided to to finish up my degree and do finance. 
And then while you were doing your degree, did you do any internships or have work experience in between, or did you just focus on your academics before starting so, full-time? Yeah, I, I did a couple internships that were, one I did one at a bank, and then one I did kind of like more like a marketing kind of role. But mm -hmm. throughout my whole university, I did so many like side hustles. And I think I didn't really put two and two together around like maybe I should just do entrepreneurship because I was always doing these like side things. And so even I think in my first year of university, um, I started my own YouTube channel and I was like really into that for a little bit. And was that what became Blink or is that a separate It was a separate content? thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I it was it was related to fashion so it was something that i thought was like really interesting and it was like it was kind of earlier in youtube days and so i think like i was just curious about the platform and so i did youtube for a bit kind of like you know didn't have a huge following I me mean, like ten thousand subscribers but it did like open my doors into like how do you get sponsors and free stuff and and all that and then um and then i think a year after that i'd started this like um handmade purse business with a friend and then we were selling that and then i and then maybe another year after that i started doing a lot of buying and selling thrifted clothes um and so i was always just doing something kind of entrepreneurial on the side um yeah, yeah. so then by the time you're at the end of your degree what were your options and how did you make the decision presumably to at the time start blink honestly i was probably too afraid at that time to like jump into entrepreneurship and so mm -hmm. i was like i want to do what all the cool kids are doing which is like get into management consulting and so my last year of university i tried really hard to try to get a job in one of like the big like consulting firms um yeah. but I suck at interviewing, so I never got a offer to any of these uh, these companies. And I, at the same time, had applied to this like entrepreneurship program called the Next Thirty Six, and I ended up getting into that program. And I was like, okay, why not just try this thing out? But it wasn't like an intentional choice. It was more out of like I can't get a job because I I don't interview well. The case interviews, those are tricky. Exactly. <laughs> okay, before we talk more about Next 36, any interview questions that you remember that you're like, it's still not oh necessarily haunts you, but you still there's remember. There's just like, a lot. I mean, there's all yeah. those really stupid brain teaser questions. Yeah, like, yeah. One of those ones like, oh, how many like ping pong balls fit <clears throat> in like an airplane? Like those yeah. type of questions, which I hated. I remember somebody asked me like, what's the most like what is something you read in the news recently that interested you and I and that really caught me off guard and I had like nothing to say I, I just I remember there were just so many things that I was like this is if this is what it's like this is probably not for me but I don't know that I took that yeah. spine early on yeah 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 interesting so uh applying to and getting into next 36 yeah uh did you just need an idea at the time or uh did you already have to have some MVP or no, market nothing. feedback. You didn't even yeah. need an idea. You, so I didn't have an idea. I didn't have a co-founder. I think they were just looking for people who were excited about entrepreneurship and maybe showed mm -hmm. some entrepreneurial like signs early on. And even when I applied, I didn't even think that fit my profile. Um, and yeah. I, even though I did all these like random side hustles, I never really saw that as like real business or real entrepreneurship. Um, mm -hmm. But I think they, 
probably thought that it was. And so that's why I, I, I got in. Wow. And then you show up on the, on the first day of the program. Um, how is it structured? And how long did it take for you to get a, a seed or inkling of what would later become Blink? So the way the program used to run, I don't know if it's exactly the same now, but it was it's pretty intense. Like you have this weekend where you are interviewing with, I think, I don't know how many interviews you had to do, maybe somewhere between 16 and like 25 interviews. Um, and that's when you're also mingling and talking to potential co-founders. And so I had gone for coffee with a couple people and then I went for coffee with these this one guy who I ended up being co-founders with, but it was literally over one coffee. And we're like, okay, it sounds like a fit. We're complementary skills. Let's like partner up together. Um, and that was maybe on the second day. And then on the third day, we had to go pitch an idea. And it was, so we had maybe 24 hours to think of what we wanted to pitch. And then we kind of just pitched Blink. And so it really came out of 24 hours after um, I met my co-founder. Wow, this is uh, Shams? Yeah, yeah. And we're still working together today. So <laughs> good good ending to that story. Talk, talk us through like the beginning. How did the idea come up? What was the problem? Honestly, was it a problem it you great. had or Shams had? It was a problem Shams had because he didn't know how to dress. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, Took him shopping one day um, and I, so he's a, you know, your typical engineer who didn't really care that much about fashion or the way he presented himself. And so I was like, you know, let's just go shopping one day. Um, if we're gonna be co-founders, you know, you have to dress a little better. Um, it wasn't that harsh, but I, I said something along those lines. So we, we yeah. went shopping, got him a bunch of like clothes, assembled them into like different outfits that I kind of took pictures and said, here, like, this is how you could assemble it together. And then, Honestly, like a couple of days later, he was like, you know what? This random person came up to me on the street and told me that they liked my outfit. And that's like never happened before. And wow. like, <laughs> I think that experience is kind of what sparked. It was like, you know, y what you wear can like really, you know, display a version of your personality and who you are, but also it can really boost your confidence. And so that was sort of like the early signs or inklings of, of what turned into blank. Wow. And then, so ultimately the product focused on curating outfits, right? Like being your personal stylist. Yes, exactly. So we, it was kind of this Tinder-like interface where you swipe through different outfits. We would use uh, machine learning collaborative filtering to like learn what your style was and then recommend you outfits that you could go buy. Okay. And then was there actually a linkage to the retailers on, at, at the end of the process? Exactly, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, how how is attraction in the first two years? Obviously, it went well, right? Having been acquired by Kick, but can you talk a little bit more about uh, yeah. customer acquisition and like the the growth in the first two years? So the first couple of months of launching our app, we had a lot of traction, and we I remember like we were uh, featured on like the App Store and was like the top oh, 10 wow. apps pretty early, and then we had a bunch of PR coverage like in fashion magazines and um and newspapers and so early traction was pretty um was fairly strong i think retention was the difficult part of it and so we kind of started to then explore different avenues um to to launch our products so we did a web app we did and then we early on did a, a chat bot on kick which is the platform that we ended up joining yeah. but kick was 
very early in terms of launching a bots platform and we were mm -hmm. one of the first few bots that were like launched so we used our software to like facilitate a chatbot experience with with teenagers it's funny yeah. now because obviously chatbots are the hugest thing right now in, in ai but this was in 20 like 14 so right. this is when it was very immature the platforms and so it was really basic but we yeah. had a lot of early success in getting users to talk with us good retention and that sort of stuff and that's right. kind of when we ended up joining kick because they wanted to build out their boss platform right so even that offer to be acquired by kick how is that moment for you and was it uh easy decision to go down that route as opposed to stay independent I think so it was because we were working with them as an early partner on their bots platform, it felt kind of natural because we were already, we had relationships with them. We were already collaborating with them. And I saw a big opportunity. Like I think when I, you know, they had just raised um, a really big round with Tencent and they were kind of aiming to be like the WeChat of the West. And um, they were, you know, at the time, like one of the only like unicorn tech companies in Canada. and yeah. so they had a huge a massive user base like 300 million users and so i think the time it was like okay there's a lot of opportunities here there's a lot of ways to like grow and learn and so i think that's kind of what excited us about the opportunity um so it wasn't yeah. obvious choice but it was it was exciting it was an exciting opportunity mm -hmm. and you stayed there for around two years and then um share a little bit more about your decision afterwards and where you ended up yeah so I think even like first few months when we were joined at Kick, Shums and I were already like brainstorming new right. ideas. We were like, hey, we're obviously going to start another company and we're going to start it together. And so we were kind of like toying around with different ideas while we were there. Um, and then, yeah, about two years in, I was like, I think I want to leave and just have a few months of just like blank slate, like don't think about anything to do with bots yeah. or fashion and like let's see if there are anything else that comes up that interests me and so yeah I think I spent like five or six months just talking to a bunch of people reading and like learning about different spaces and mm -hmm. then that's kind of when we started to brainstorm different ideas within the kind of education to employment space right how did you even kind of this is a segue to hatchways but what was the genesis of the idea right modernizing the interview process, especially for, you know, developers and technical interviews. Um, how did so, that start? So it started actually because during the time I took off between Kick and starting Hatchways, I was talking to just a lot of people in the tech industry. And really, I would just go for coffee with people and ask people like, what are your biggest pain points right now? And like, what's what are you focused on? And mm -hmm. almost everyone would say something along the lines of hiring, or there's not enough talent or mm -hmm. finding the the right engineers or stuff along that lines. Um, and so that started to pique my interest. And then I was trying to find, you know, what problem is most exciting for me in here. And obviously this yeah. kind of ties back to my like inability to get jobs when I was graduating because I suck at interviewing. Um, I, it was obvious to me that that was something that I was, uh, I felt strongly about. I felt like interview mm. processes oftentimes screen out people who just don't interview well, not necessarily can't do the job. And so yeah, yeah. that was an area that, you know, obviously have personal experience and have personal frustrations and understand well. And mm -hmm. so um, I, I found like an opportunity uh, to, to build a solution there. 
And why the focus on the technical aspect, right? Because like for me, I'm non-technical. Yeah. So I feel like this solution also would be super valuable and applicable to sales roles, non-technical roles. So any reason why you wanted to focus more on developers to start? Yeah, no, I agree that there's it's definitely applicable to non-technical roles as well. It, the beginning of stages, it was really just seeing that there was a growing market of people who were getting into development that didn't come from mm -hmm. traditional backgrounds. So a lot of people who are just becoming self-taught, who are going to boot camps, um, and those people didn't really have obvious pathways into getting jobs. And so I think as that market started to grow, we thought, and as of course tech companies were booming and needed more tech talent, there was an obvious sort of bridge between between the two. Got it. Um, and then you ended up at Y Combinator. So um, how, how long after you and Shums kind of developed the idea and presumably built an early prototype, um, did you end up going into Y Combinator and share a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, um, so I think by the time we were starting to like build and prototype and then getting into Y Combinator, maybe it was like eight or nine months. Um, it was honestly serendipitous. Like I hadn't really thought about applying to Y Combinator, but one day I was like, I had dinner with a friend who had invited a few of his friends and one person at the dinner had just gone through Y Combinator and was mm -hmm. talking super highly about it and like recommended that I apply and the deadline was like in a few days. And so I just thought, why not? And yeah. um, definitely one of the best decisions. It was honestly an amazing experience, especially from, you know, being a Canadian founder and then getting exposure to Silicon Valley. It's like a whole yeah. different world out there. I was lucky enough to do the program pre-COVID. So it was in person mm. and I got to the full experience of being around like hundreds of other founders who were super, like motivated and passionate, um, getting a chance to meet all the like partners at YC and just getting yeah. that full, like even in-person investor fundraising experience. And so, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, and yeah, would highly recommend to, to people who are just starting out. Mm. And how was uh, demo day for you? The culmination of the program, um, any memorable kind of stories from there or, or things that changed a lot from when you initially uh, shared what you did at Demo Day? It was a really stressful experience for me. Mm -hmm. I think it was like, I mean, I think they bring like 800 investors or something like that. You're in right. person. They don't do that anymore. I think they do mainly like Demo Day online, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was probably the biggest audience I'd ever had like pitched in front of and you get like yeah. I can't even remember like one or two minutes to pitch and wow. it's really difficult to like succinctly explain your business and your traction in such a short period of time so there was a lot of like days or weeks leading up to that where um I think I was really stressful and kind of overthinking things but it was a great experience um um yeah but overall like I said like I think coming from Canada like I think um, I wouldn't have had that exposure and to the investor network that right. I did when I was in in YC. YC, right. So, I mean, that's a good segue into the next question, which is around building a company in Canada and Toronto. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you and Shams could have stayed in, in the Valley if you wanted to. Um, talk about that decision to, to build Hatchways in Toronto and why you're optimistic and bullish on tech in Toronto. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, well, it was, it was, it wasn't obvious that we were going to come back to Toronto and stay mm -hmm. here. I think that we came back after YC and then it was pretty shortly after that COVID came. And so we yeah. were, we ended up staying here. Um, but I think one of the biggest reasons for staying in Toronto is just the, like the talent that you get access to and the government support for tech companies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like my co-founder went to U of T and that's obviously an amazing university for tech talent, Waterloo. Yeah. I mean, most of our, like some of our early employees are fr from Waterloo. Um, and that's obviously an amazing program to find early talent as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then the government support, they give really good subsidies for, um, for startups that are building in tech. And so that was also a reason, or that was a reason to stay like Canadian um, yeah. incorporated company. Um, and then now that everything is remote, like we just recognize that doing sales and even fundraising and hiring is mm -hmm. can easily be done uh, remote and online now. And so um, we didn't find an obvious reason to like have to move yeah. away from Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, how many employees does Hatchways have and what's kind of the geographical distribution? Yeah, so we're a small team now. We're eight, we're only eight people. We have, yeah. uh, have half of us in Toronto, um, a couple of people in India and 1% in the US. Yeah, right. And then what, what do kind of the growth plans or future look like for the company and what are some targets that you've set in the next one or two years? So that's hard to say right now because the market for hiring and recruiting is very rocky. Uh, you mm -hmm. must obviously have seen totally. like no yeah. and like the last year and a half or so has been pretty tricky for uh, recruiting startups and just, yeah. you know, obviously a lot of layoffs and hiring freezes have happened and we haven't, we've maybe slowly started to see it improve this year, but mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to predict where that's going to take us. So I think, for the time being, the goal is just to kind of, you know, lay low, really just like build product, really yeah. try to continue to build with our current partners and then just yeah. hope that um, we come out of the turbulent market soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would like to think too that during this time, more of the value should actually shift to software and platforms to do things at scale with yeah. great experiences, right? So obviously we've all heard and, and felt some of the layoffs, especially um, in the HR side of things, but I'm assuming that might actually be favorable to Hatchways as well. Yeah, hopefully, I think I think that's right. I think that um, a lot of companies are really focused right now on building efficiencies, um, and obviously, software is the most obvious way to build efficiencies. So I think yeah. um, hopefully we'll see that soon. Yeah, yeah, cool. So just kind of shifting gears to the last part of the conversation, which is advice, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, question number one is, what do you feel like has been the true north to some of your uh, major career and life decisions, right? Deciding where to go to school, what to do after university, even deciding when to leave, let's say, uh, kick, for example. Um, any any commonality between those decisions that you feel uh, ties it all together? I think the, the most obvious thing to me is like, where where do I find energy? And so, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm like waking up every day and I'm not energetic, I'm not excited about something, that's an obvious sign to me that I'm not doing yeah. something that I should be doing or that I'm not on the right path. And mm -hmm. when I think about ideas or people to work with or 
you know, where to go next. Like I think that a lot, you can tell a lot by how energetic something makes you. And so I think like, yeah. I maybe spend too much time sometimes making decisions on like logic and like getting enough data. But I think over time, I really realized just like listening to like where right. your energy is and where your curiosities are, it kind of always the right decision. Totally. And it's a it's almost a day to day thing, but it, and it's very intuitive as as you kind of allude to. But that's what I've been subscribing to more lately, which is how do I feel? Not just every day, but over totally. consistent period of time. Obviously, we'll all have bad days. I had a bad night's sleep, for example, and I'm not going to feel good exactly. the next day. But I think it is a really good uh, signal for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the other question is, I saw one of the quotes that you referenced is the quote be reckless enough to gamble all or nothing to follow your dreams and who knows like this could have been five years ago so yeah. I'm not ten years ago probably right um what has been the most quote unquote reckless and non-regrettable decision that you think you've made in hindsight oh i mean i think just jumping into entrepreneurship i mean i was yeah. like 22 or 23 when i started my first company i never worked for anyone like seriously mm -hmm. i'd only done maybe one or two internships and never had like a boss i didn't really yeah i think just jumping into something that excited me even though i didn't know a lot of things was probably like a little reckless but um but exciting so yeah <laughs> yeah and then kind of looping this all back to the beginning of our conversation which is your parents right um how do your parents feel about your entrepreneurial journey are they totally supportive and love that you're, you know, carving your own path and, and being successful or um, do they actually have some feelings of, hey, maybe you should think about a corporate job, which <laughs> some parents obviously have for their kids. What's no, I was, I was super them? lucky. I, my parents yeah. have always been supportive. Um, I, I remember when I was doing my first startup, like sometimes I think I would try to like talk to my mom and like when I wanted to quit or felt like it was getting tough, I wanted like in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, maybe if I talk to my mom, she'll just tell me like, oh, you should get a corporate job, right? right. And like use her as kind of a scapegoat, but she never would. And she would, and like that kind of, you know, her voice sticks in my mind. Like she'll always say like, you know what? You just never know what's like around the corner and just get, keep at it. You can get a job whenever, like you can always get a job, right? And I think yeah. like that really helped me. And so, I was lucky to have a parent who didn't, every time it got tough, didn't tell me like, oh, maybe it's time. Yeah. yeah. I told you. Exactly. <laughs> no, that support is priceless for sure. Um, and funny how you, you mentioned earlier, you weren't good at interviews. So now that you're presumably on the other side of the table, do you have a favorite interview question that you consistently ask or one that you try to avoid for the sake <laughs> of the candidate? Well, I hate any interview questions where it's like you're trying to like get a gotcha from from somebody right. like trying to trick you or like, you know, it's not clear about why you're asking them those questions. So I try to avoid that. Um, I mean, I always just I mean, I think when you're doing an early stage startup and early employees that join your team, you really just want people who are like curious and like excited to solve like hard problems. And so I think like questions that I can get a sense of that is is interesting and so i like to ask people like what is something you're really curious about and tell me a little bit about like what you've learned or how you've um grown your knowledge in that over the last little while and that kind of just tells me a little bit about like their interests and what they'll sort of the extent they'll go into to learn something or do something if they're really curious mm -hmm. about something yeah 
going down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah. Of which these days now with the internet, any topic you can go super deep and yeah. realize, wow, it's a whole universe, right? Whether it's like coffee making or like cycling, I'm now getting into that. I'm like, wow, this is a whole new world for totally. sure. So, uh, last question, maybe a bit personal is, I'm going to Vancouver mm. in a couple of weeks for my 10 year wedding anniversary with my wife. Oh, congrats. Restaurant recommendation. So when you go back to BC, yeah. are there any must go or must visit places where you, you have to eat a meal before you come back <laughs> east? Whenever I go to Vancouver, I try to have sushi like every day. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I hope you're a big sushi eater. Yes, we are, like, we are. Vancouver is the best, the best right? sushi and like best bang for your buck because you can just get like a really delicious meal for very cheap. I mean, the I grew up in Burnaby, so like the the like go to place for sushi was Sushi Garden. I don't know sushi if you've Garden. Been okay. but yeah, Garden. they have this like really good roll called Alaska roll. They have their special sauce on there, really good. So probably recommend that. Great Sushi Garden. <laughs> yeah. They're going to have a explosion in traffic after this <laughs> Great. No, thanks so much, Jacqueline. It was fun to chat and amazing to hear your story. And congrats on, on all the success you've had so far. No, thank you so much for the, for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Great. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.